1. Little Journeys to the Homes of the Great Albert Hubbard Publishers Preface Albert Hubbard is dead, or should we say, has gone on his last little journey to the great beyond, but the children of his fertile brain still live and will continue to live and keep fresh the memory of their illustrious forebear. Fourteen years were consumed in the preparation of the work that ranks today as Albert Hubbard's masterpiece. In 1894, the series of little journeys to the homes of the great was begun, and once a month for fourteen years, without a break, one of these little pilgrimages was given to the world. These little gems have been accepted as classics and will live. In all there are 180 little journeys that take us to the homes of the men and women who transformed the thought of their time changed the course of empire, and marked the destiny of civilization, through him, the ideas, the deeds, the achievements of these immortals have been given to the living present and will be sent echoing down the centuries, Hubbard's little journeys to the homes of these men and women have not been equaled since Plutarch wrote his 46 parallel lives of the Greeks and Romans, and these were given to the world before the first rosy dawn of modern civilization had risen to the horizon, without dwelling upon their achievements. Plutarch, with a trifling incident, a simple word or an innocent jest, showed the virtues and failings of his subject. As a result, no other books from classical literature have come down through the ages to us with so great an influence upon the lives of the leading men of the world, who can recount the innumerable biographies that begin thus, in his youth, our subject had for his constant reading, Plutarch's lives, etc. Emerson must have had in mind this silent, irresistible force that shaped the lives of the great men of these twenty centuries when he declared, all history resolves itself very easily into the biography of a few stout and earnest persons. Plutarch lived in the time of St. Paul, and wrote of the early Greeks and Romans, after two thousand years Hubbard appeared, to bridge the centuries from Athens, in the golden age of Pericles, to America, in the wondrous age of Edison, with the magic wand of genius he touched the buried mummies of all time and from each tomb gushed forth the geyser of inspiration. Hugh Chalmers once remarked that, if he were getting out a blue book of America, he would publish Albert Hubbard's subscription lists. Whether we accept this authoritative statement or not, there is no doubt that the pen of this immortal did more to stimulate the best minds of the country than any other American writer, living or dead. Eminent writers study Hubbard for style while at the same time thousands of the tired men and women who do the world's work read him for inspiration. Truly, this man wielded his pen like an archangel. Not only as a writer does this many-sided genius command our admiration, but in many chosen fields, in all of which he excelled, as an institution, the Rycroft shops would reflect credit upon the business acumen of the ablest men that America has produced in the field of achievement, the industry, it would seem was launched to demonstrate the practicality of the high principles and philosophy preached by its founder, not only by the printed page, but from the platform. Right here let it be noted that, as a public speaker, Hubbard appeared before more audiences than any other lecturer of his time who gave the platform his undivided attention, where, one asks in amazement, did this remarkable man find the inspiration for carrying forward his great work? It is no secret. It was drawn from his own little pilgrimages to the haunts of the great, again like Plutarch. These miniature biographies were composed for the personal benefit of the writer. It was his own satisfaction and moral improvement that inspired the work. Following Hubbard's tragic death, 
the announcement was made from East Aurora that the Philistine magazine would be discontinued. Hubbard had gone on a long journey and might need his Philistine. Besides, who was there to take up his pen? It was also a beautiful tribute to the father from the son. The same spirit of devotion has prompted the Wright Crofters to issue their memorial edition of the Little Journeys to the Homes of the Great. In no other way could they so fittingly perpetuate the memory of the founder of their institution as to liberate the influence that was such an important factor in molding the career of his genius. If he should cast a backward glance, he would not his approval. If there is to be a memorial, certainly let it be a service to mankind. He would have us all tap the same source from which he drew his inspiration. Autobiographical the image of wisdom is to know that rest is rust, and that real life is in love. Laughter and work. Albert Hubbard I have been asked to write an article about myself and the work in which I am engaged. I think I am honest enough to sink self. To stand outside my own personality. And answer the proposition. Let me begin by telling what I am not. And thus reach the vital issue by elimination. First. I am not popular in society. And those who champion my cause in my own town are plain. And pretentious people. Second. I am not a popular writer. Since my name has never been mentioned in the Atlantic, Scribner's, Harper's, The Century, or the Ladies' Home Journal, but as a matter of truth, it may not be amiss for me to say that I have waited long hours in the entryway of each of the magazines just named, in days agone, and then been handed the frappe. Third, I am not rich, as the world counts wealth. Fourth, as an orator I am without the graces, and do scant justice to the double-breasted Prince Albert. Fifth, the Roycroft shop, to the welfare of which my life is dedicated, is not so large as to be conspicuous on account of size. Sixth, personally, I am no $10,000 beauty, the glass of fashion and the mold of form are far from mine. Then what have I done concerning which the public wishes to know? Simply this, in one obscure country village I have had something to do with stopping the mad desire on the part of the young people to get out of the country and flock to the cities. In this town and vicinity the tide has been turned from city to country. We have made one country village an attractive place for growing youth by supplying congenial employment, opportunity for education and healthful recreation, and an outlook into the world of art and beauty. All boys and girls want to make things with their hands, and they want to make beautiful things. They want to get along, and I've simply given them a chance to get along here, instead of seeking their fortunes in Buffalo, New York or Chicago. They have helped me and I have helped them, and through this mutual help we have made head, gain ground upon the whole. By myself I could have done nothing, and if I have succeeded, it is simply because I have had the aid and company operation of cheerful, willing, loyal and loving helpers. Even now as I am writing this in my cabin in the woods, four miles from the village, they are down there at the shop, quietly, patiently, cheerfully doing my work which work is also theirs. No man lives unto himself alone, our interests are all bound up together, and there is no such thing as a man going off by himself and corralling the good. When I came to this town there was not a house in the place that had a lavatory with hot and cold water attachments. Those who bathed, swam in the creek in the summer or used the family wash tub in the kitchen in winter. My good old partner, Harley Baba, has always prided himself on his personal cleanliness he is arrayed in rags, but underneath. His hide is clean, and better still, his heart is right. Yet when he first became a member of my household, he was obliged to take his Saturday night tub out in the orchard, 
From spring until autumn came with withered leaves. He used to make quite an ado in the kitchen, heating the water in the wash boiler, six pails of cistern water, a gourd of soft soap, and a gunny sack for friction were required in the operation. Of course, the Bob waited until after dark before performing his ablutions, but finally his plans were more or less disturbed by certain rising youth, who timed his habits and awaited his disrobing with all their ripe tomatoes, the bombardment, and the inability to pursue the enemy. Turn the genial current of the Baba's life awry until I put a bathroom in my house, with a lock on the door. This bit of history I have mentioned for the dual purpose of shedding light on former bathing facilities in East Aurora, and more especially to show that once we had the hoodlum with us. Hoodlumism is born of idleness, it is useful energy gone to seed. In small towns hoodlumism is rife, and the hoodlums are usually the children of the best citizens. Hoodlumism is the first step in the direction of crime. The hoodlum is very often a good boy who does not know what to do, and so he does the wrong thing. He bombards with tomatoes a good man taking a bath, puts tic-tacs on windows, ties a tin can to the dog's tail, takes the burrs off your carriage wheels, steals your chickens, annexes your horse blankets, and scares old ladies into fits by appearing at windows wrapped in a white sheet, to wear a mask, walk in and demand the money in the family ginger jar is the next and natural evolution. To a great degree the Roycroft shop has done away with hoodlumism in this village, and a stranger wearing a silk hat, or an artist with a white umbrella, is now quite safe upon our streets. Very naturally, the oldest inhabitant will deny what I have said about East Aurora. He will tell you that the order, cleanliness and beauty of the place have always existed. The change has come about so naturally, and so entirely without his assistance, that he knows nothing about it. Truth when first presented is always denied, but later there comes a stage when the man says, I always believed it, and so the good old citizens are induced to say that these things have always been, or else they gently poo-poo them. However, the truth remains that I introduced the first heating furnace into the town, bought the first lawn mower, was among the first to use electricity for lights and natural gas for fuel, and so far, am the only one in town to use natural gas for power until the starting of the Roycroft shop. There were no industries here, aside from the regulation country store, grocery, tavern, blacksmith shop and sawmill none of which enterprises attempted to supply more than local wants. There was Hamlin's stock farm, devoted to raising trotting horses, that gave employment to some of the boys, but for the girls there was nothing. They got married at the first chance, some became hired girls, or, if they had ambitions, fixed their hearts on the Buffalo Normal School, raised turkeys, picked berries, and turned every honest penny towards the desire to get an education so as to become teachers. Comparatively, this class was small in number. Most of the others simply followed that indefined desire to get away out of the dull, monotonous, gossiping village, and so, craving excitement, they went away to the cities, and the city swallowed them. A wise man has said that God made the country, man the city and the devil the small towns. The country supplies the city its best and its worst. We hear of the few who succeed, but of the many who are lost in the maelstrom we know nothing. Sometimes in country homes it is even forbidden to mention certain names. She went to the city, you are told and there the history abruptly stops. And so, to swing back to the place of beginning, I think the chief reason many good folks are interested in the Roycroft shop is because here country boys and girls are given work at which they not only earn their living, 
but can get an education while doing it. Next to this is the natural curiosity to know how a large and successful business can be built up in a plain, humdrum village by simply using the talent and materials that are at hand. And so I am going to tell now how the Roycroft shop came to start, a little about what it has done, what it is trying to do, and what it hopes to become. And since modesty is only egotism turned wrong side out, I will make no special endeavor to conceal the fact that I have had something to do with the venture. In London, from about 1650 to 1690, Samuel and Thomas Roycroft printed and made very beautiful books. In choosing the name, Roycroft, for our shop we had these men in mind. But beyond this the word has a special significance. Meaning King's Craft King's Craftsman being a term used in the guilds of the olden times for men who had achieved a high degree of skill and who made things for the king. So a Roycrofter is a person who makes beautiful things, and makes them as well as he can. The Roycrofters, is the legal name of our institution. It is a corporation, and the shares are distributed among the workers. No shares are held by anyone but Roycrofters, and it is agreed that any worker who quits the shop shall sell his shares back to the concern. This company operative plan, it has been found, begets a high degree of personal diligence, a loyalty to the institution, a sentiment of fraternity and a feeling of permanency among the workers that is very beneficial to all concerned. Each worker, even the most humble, calls it power shop, and feels that he is an integral and necessary part of the whole. Possibly there are a few who consider themselves more than necessary. Harley Baba, for instance, it is said has referred to himself, at times, as the whole thing, and this is all right, too I would never chide in excess of zeal, the pride of a worker in his work and work is a thing to foster, it's the man who, doesn't give a damn, who is really troublesome, the artistic big head is not half so bad as apathy, in the month of December, 1894, I printed the first, little journeys, in booklet form, at the local printing office, having become discouraged in trying to find a publisher. But before offering the publication to the public, I decided to lay the matter again before G.P. Putnam's sons. Although they had declined the matter in manuscript form, Mr. George H. Putnam rather liked the matter, and was induced to issue the periodical as a venture for one year. The scheme seemed to meet with success, the novel form of the publication being in its favor. The subscription reached nearly a thousand in six months, the newspapers were a kind, and the success of the plan suggested printing a pamphlet modeled on similar lines, telling what we thought about things in general, and publishers and magazine editors in particular. There was no intention at first of issuing more than one number of this pamphlet, but to get it through the mails at magazine rates we made up a little subscription list and asked that it be entered at the post office at East Aurora's second-class matter. The postmaster adjusted his brass rim spectacles read the pamphlet, and decided that it surely was second-class matter. We called it, the Philistine, because we were going after the, chosen people, in literature. It was Leslie Stephen who said, the term Philistine is a word used by prigs to designate people they do not like. When you call a man a bad name, you are that thing not me. The smug and snugly ensconced denizens of Union Square called me a Philistine, and I said, yes, I am one. If a Philistine is something different from you, my helpers, the printers, were about to go away to pastures new, they were in debt, the town was small, they could not make a living, so they offered me their outfit for a thousand dollars, I accepted the proposition, 
I decided to run the Philistine magazine for a year to keep faith with the misguided and hopeful parties who had subscribed and then quit to fill in the time. We printed a book, we printed it like a William Morris book printed it just as well as we could. It was cold in the old barn where we first set up the Philistine. So I built a little building like an old English chapel right alongside of my house. There was one basement and a room upstairs. I wanted it to be comfortable and pretty. And so we furnished our little shop cozily. We had four girls and three boys working for us then. The shop was never locked. And the boys and girls used to come around evenings. It was really more pleasant than at home. I brought over a shelf of books from the library. Then I brought the piano. Because the youngsters wanted to dance. The girls brought flowers and birds. And the boys put up curtains at the windows. We were having a lot of fun with new subscriptions coming in almost every day, and once in a while an order for a book. The place got too small when we began to bind books, so we built a wing on one side, then a wing on the other side, to keep the three carpenters busy who had been building the wings. I set them to making furniture for the place. They made the furniture as good as they could folks came along and bought it. The boys picked up field stones and built a great, splendid fireplace and chimney at one end of the shop. The work came out so well that I said, Boys, here is a great scheme. These hardheads are splendid building material. So I advertised we would pay a dollar a load for niggerheads. The farmers began to haul stones. They hauled more stones. And at last they had hauled 4,000 loads. We bought all the stone in the dollar limit. Bowling the market on boulders. Three stone buildings have been built. Another is in progress and our plans are made to build an art gallery of the same material the stones that the builders rejected. An artist blew in on the way to nowhere. His baggage a tomato can. He thought he would stop over for a day or two he is with us yet. And three years have gone by since he came. And now we could not do without him. Then we have a few remittance men. Sent to us from a distance. Without return tickets. Some of these men were willing to do anything but work they offered to run things. To preach. To advise to make love to the girls. We bought them tickets to Chicago, and without violence conducted them to the four o'clock train. We have boys who have been expelled from school, blind people, deaf people, old people, jailbirds and mental defectives, and have managed to set them all at useful work, but the remittance man of good family who smokes cigarettes in bed has proved too much for us so we have given him the four o'clock without Ruth. We do not encourage people from a distance who want work to come on they are apt to expect too much. They look for utopia. When work is work, here as elsewhere, there is just as much need for patience, gentleness, loyalty and love here as anywhere. Application, desire to do the right thing, a willingness to help, and a well-curbed tongue are as necessary in East Aurora as in Tuskegee. We do our work as well as we can, live one day at a time, and try to be kind. The village of East Aurora, Erie County, New York, the home of the Roycrofters, is 18 miles southeast of the city of Buffalo. The place has a population of about 3,000 people. There is no wealth in the town and no poverty. In East Aurora there are six churches, with pastor salaries varying from $300 to $1,000 a year, and we have a most excellent school. The place is not especially picturesque or attractive, being simply a representative New York State village. Lake Erie is 10 miles distant, and Cazenovia Creek winds its lazy way along by the village. The land around East Aurora is poor, 
and so reduced in purse are the farmers that no insurance company will insure farm property in Erie County under any conditions unless the farmer has some business outside of agriculture the experience of the underwriters being that when a man is poor enough, he is also dishonest, insure a farmer's barn in New York State, and there is a strong probability that he will soon invest in kerosene, however, there is no real destitution, for a farmer can always raise enough produce to feed his family, and in a wooded country he can get fuel, even if he has to lift it between the dawn and the day. Most of the workers in the Roycroft shop are children of farming folk, and it is needless to add that they are not college-bred, nor have they had the advantages of foreign travel. One of our best helpers, Uncle Billy Bushnell, has never been to Niagara Falls, and does not care to go. Uncle Billy says if you stay at home and do your work well enough, the world will come to you, which aphorism the old man backs up with another, probably derived from experience, to the effect that a man is a fool to chase after women, because, if he doesn't, the women will chase after him. The wisdom of this hard-headed old son of the soil who abandoned agriculture for art at 70 is exemplified in the fact that during the year just passed, over 28,000 pilgrims have visited the Roycroft shop representing every state and territory of the Union and every civilized country on the globe even far off Iceland, New Zealand and the Isle of Guam. 310 people are on the payroll at the present writing. The principal work is printing, illuminating and binding books. We also have a furniture shop, where mission furniture of the highest grade is made, a modeled leather shop, where the most wonderful creations in calfskin are to be seen, and a smithy, where copper utensils of great beauty are hammered out by hand. Quite as important as the printing and binding is the illuminating of initials and title pages. This is a revival of a lost art, gone with so much of the artistic work done by the monks of the olden time. Yet there is a demand for such work, and so far as I know, we are the first concern in America to take up the hand illumination of books as a business. Of course we have had to train our helpers, and from very crude attempts at decoration we have attained to a point where the British Museum and the Bibliothèque at The Hague have deigned to order and pay good golden guineas for specimens of our handicraft. Very naturally we want to do the best work possible, and so self-interest prompts us to be on the lookout for budding genius. The Roycroft is a quest for talent. There is a market for the best, and the surest way, we think, to get away from competition is to do your work a little better than the other fellow. The old tendency to make things cheaper, instead of better, in the book line is a fallacy, as shown in the fact that within ten years there have been a dozen failures of big publishing houses in the United States. The liabilities of these bankrupt concerns footed the fine total of $14 million. The man who made more books and cheaper books than any one concern ever made, had the felicity to fail very shortly, with liabilities of something over a million dollars. He overdid the thing in matter of cheapness mistook his market. Our motto island, not how cheap, but how good. This is the richest country the world has ever known. Far richer per capita than England lending money to Europe. Once Americans were all shoddy pioneers have to be. I'm told but now only a part of us are shoddy. As men and women increase in culture and refinement, they want fewer things, and they want better things. The cheap article, I will admit ministers to a certain grade of intellect, but if the man grows, there will come a time when, instead of a great many cheap and shoddy things, he will want a few good things, he will want things that symbol solidity, truth, genuineness and beauty, 
The Roycrofters have many opportunities for improvement not the least of which is the seeing, hearing and meeting distinguished people. We have a public dining room, and not a day passes but men and women of note sit at meet with us, at the evening meal. If our visitors are so inclined, and are of the right fiber, I ask them to talk, and if there is no one else to speak, I sometimes read a little from William Morris, Shakespeare, Walt Whitman or Ruskin, David Bispham has sung for us, Maud Adams and many Madden Fisk have also favored us with a taste of their quality, Judge Lindsay, Alfred Henry Lewis, Richard Lee Gallien, Robert Barr, have visited us, but to give a list of all the eminent men and women who have spoken, sung or played for us would lay me liable for infringement in printing, who's who, however, let me name one typical incident, the Boston Ideal Opera Company was playing in Buffalo, and Henry Clay Barnaby and half a dozen of his players took a run out to East Aurora, they were shown through the shop by one of the girls whose work it is to receive visitors, a young woman of the company sat down at one of the pianos and played, I chanced to be near and asked Mr. Barnaby if he would not sing, and graciously he answered, Fra Albertus, I'll do anything that you say. I gave the signal that all the workers should quit their tasks and meet at the chapel. In five minutes we had an audience of three hundred men in blouses and overalls, girls in big aprons a very jolly, kindly, receptive company. Mr. Barnaby was at his best I never saw him so funny. He sang, danced, recited, and told stories for forty minutes. The Roycrofters were, of course, delighted, one girl whispered to me as she went out, I wonder what great sorrow is gnawing at Barnaby's heart, that he is so wondrous gay, need I say that the girl who made the remark just quoted had drunk of life's cup to the very least, we have a few such with us and several of them are among our most loyal helpers, one fortuitous event that has worked to our decided advantage was, a message to Narcia, this article, not much more than a paragraph, covering only 1500 words, was written one evening after supper in a single hour. It was the 22nd of February, 1899, Washington's birthday, and we were just going to press with the march, Philistine, be thinly caught from my heart, written after a rather trying day, when I had been endeavoring to train some rather delinquent helpers in the way they should go. The immediate suggestion, though, came from a little argument over the teacups when my son Bert suggested that Rowan was the real hero of the Cuban War. Rowan had gone alone and done anything carried the message to Garcia. It came to me like a flash. Yes, the boy is right. The hero is the man who does the thing does his work carries the message. I got up from the table and wrote a message to Garcia. I thought so little of it that we ran it in without a heading. The edition went out, and soon orders began to come for extra march, Philistines a dozen, fifty, a hundred, and when the American News Company ordered a thousand I asked one of my helpers which article it was that had stirred things up. It's that stuff about Garcia, he said. The next day a telegram came from George H. Daniels, of the New York Central Railroad. Thus, give price on 100,000 row an article in pamphlet form Empire State Express advertisement on back also state how soon can ship. I replied giving price and stated we could supply the pamphlets in two years. Our facilities were small, and a hundred thousand pamphlets looked like an awful undertaking. The result was that I gave Mr. Daniels permission to reprint the article in his own way. He issued it in booklet form in editions of one hundred thousand each. Five editions were sent out, and then he got out an edition of half a million. 
two or three of these half million lots were to send out by Mr. Daniels, and in addition the article was reprinted in over 200 magazines and newspapers. It has been translated into 11 languages, and been given a total circulation of over 22 million copies. It has attained, I believe, a larger circulation in the same length of time than any written article has ever before reached. Of course, we cannot tell just how much good a message to Garcia has done the shop, but it probably doubled the circulation of the Philistine. I do not consider it by any means my best piece of writing, but it was opportune the time was ripe. Truth demands a certain expression, and too much had been said on the other side about the downtrodden, honest man, looking for work and not being able to find it. The article in question states the other side, men are needed loyal, honest men who will do their work. The world cries out for him the man who can carry a message to Garcia. The man who sent the message and the man who received it are dead. The man who carried it is still carrying other messages. The combination of theme, condition of the country, and method of circulation was so favorable that their conjunction will probably never occur again. Other men will write better articles, but they may go a-begging for lack of a Daniels to bring them to judgment. Concerning my own personal history, I'll not tarry long to tell. It has been too much like the career of many another born in the semi-pioneer times of the Middle West, to attract much attention, unless one should go into the psychology of the thing with intent to show the evolution of a soul, but that will require a book and someday I'll write it, after the manner of St. Augustine or Jean Jacks, but just now I'll only say that I was born in Illinois, June 19, 1856, my father was a country doctor whose income never exceeded $500 a year. I left school at 15, with a fair hold on the three hours, and beyond this my education in manual training had been good. I knew all the forest trees, all wild animals thereabout, every kind of fish, frog, fowl or bird that swam, ran or flew. I knew every kind of grain or vegetable, and its comparative value. I knew the different breeds of cattle, horses, sheep and swine. I could teach wild cows to stand while being milked, break horses to saddle or harness, could sow, plow and reap, knew the mysteries of apple butter, pumpkin pie pickled beef, smoked side meat, and could make lionel leech and formulate soft soap. That is to say, I was a bright, strong, active country boy who had been brought up to help his father and mother get a living for a large family. I was not so densely ignorant don't feel sorry for country boys, God is often on their side. At 15 I worked on a farm and did a man's work for a boy's pay. I did not like it and told the man so. He replied, you know what you can do. And I replied, yes. I went westward like the course of empire and became a cowboy, tired of this and went to Chicago, worked in a printing office, 